Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am joined today by a very special guest, uh, Eric Clark, CEO of Orion Advisor Services. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thank you, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be on the, the, the podcast with you today. Absolutely. So uh, full disclosure, Eric is my boss. I think in, in, the, in, the, in the service of good media, I think that needs to be said. But Orion, Eric, has become a huge player in the fintech space now serving over 2,100 advisory firms with over uh, $1.3 trillion in assets under administration, 75 of the top 100 independent BDs. But this all started as a family business in middle America. So can you, can you walk us uh, down the path from family business in, in Nebraska to the, the great heights you've ascended to today? You bet. Happy to do that. And, you know, not to go too far back here, but, um, you know, my father broke away from a regional wirehouse in 1973 because, you know, essentially he felt that that mutual funds were a better investment vehicle for most of his clients than than individual stocks. And, you know, his entrepreneurial spirit and desire to to put the clients at the core of everything uh, that that he was doing at at that time, or you know, still values that that we hope to continue to emulate as we sit here some nearly fifty years later and and carry on that legacy. And you know, we've obviously evolved the business over time to where we are today. And you know, looking back, I think that my father was an industry pioneer in in so many different ways, and. You know, he started to help other advisors in 1991 uh, work with their clients, both as a fiduciary and uh, on an advisory fee basis. And as the business grew, uh, you know, he was operating a turnkey asset management platform. At that time, we, we desperately needed better technology to support the growth of that business. And in December of 1999, after we worked as a team to pull together a pretty aggressive business plan, uh, you know, out of necessity, we created the company that today is, is Orion. And, you know, while we've had a lot of success over the years, you know, that I, I would attribute that success to those values of that entrepreneurial spirit and always putting the client first with every decision that that we make the same things that were driving my father to to leave the the wirehouse you know back in 1973 so when you say pioneer he he truly was now my my father is a financial advisor and uh, came up through the wirehouse ranks and i was born my father was mowing lawns um, and he actually got his job as a financial as a stockbroker at the time on the day that I was born in late 1979. And I remember as a young child, 
definitely talking with him about individual stocks and the whole business model. I mean, I remember this from being a, a young child. The whole business model was sort of slanging individual stocks and stock tips and what do you have for me and what's the hot dot. So he, he absolutely was a pioneer. And I think that that DNA of customer obsession uh, client centricity and doing the right thing is is absolutely a part of of the Orion DNA today. Yeah, I would agree, and I think we had very similar upbringings in in that regard. You know, having both of our fathers as as financial advisors is is somewhat unique, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and you know, my dad, I think honestly, he he used to joke that in 1973. You know, after seeing uh, some pretty rough markets, he hadn't seen too many stocks increase in value. So he was just simply more comfortable offering mutual funds to his clients and his uh, regional wirehouse that he was uh, with at that time uh, consolidated with a larger wirehouse. And he was asked to sell uh, stocks. And it was a, as he uh, used to joke about that, it was a pretty quick uh, meeting. (laughs) <laughs> and he and his branch manager at that time left uh, the the wirehouse and went out and formed their own uh, firm and affiliated with, uh, at that time, an independent broker dealer that would allow them to sell mutual funds. And, you know, I think that, that his experience uh, was obviously impacted by the, the market situation at that time, but his desire to serve those clients and putting those clients first was definitely at the heart of, of that decision and, and the heart of many of the decisions that we make each and every day here at Orion today. Now, from those early pioneering roots, your business has taken on some, some size and some complexity, and now there are really two major sides to your business. You have the, the tech side and the, the TAMP side, the asset management side. Uh, many see the world of asset management as largely a solved problem today. I think more and more people are turning away from um, you know, sort of complicated or active strategies and, and are content to, to sort of ride the wave of beta. Uh, do you agree or not that asset management is a solved problem? And uh, where do you think future innovations will take place in the world of asset management? Well, you know, I, I, would, uh, I would agree that the asset management problem has been solved. You know, Nobel Prizes have been awarded for work that's been done to help solve the asset management problem. And whether you subscribe to active or passive investment philosophies, when we adhere to them over the long term, the rewards are typically there for the investor. But the problem is, uh, you know, our emotions are getting in the way. And, and if you look at, you know, the Dalbar research, it, it consistently shows that the investor returns are far different than the investment returns. And, you know, research that they've done will show, you know, several hundred basis points uh, variance in average annual returns. And when you look at that, you, you would have to say as an industry that we need to spend a bit more time understanding how we can help investors be more successful and avoid those emotional decisions that that we often make of of buying high based on you know momentum and and selling low based on you know our emotion of of fear and 
the the emotional side of our behavior seems to get the best of us as investors and you know simply put you know greed and fear are getting in the way of our investment success and i think that solving the investor problem ultimately means that as we go forward our educational backgrounds and skill sets are going to look really different than they do uh, today, you know, in the future, I think we need a lot more people working with investors that have social science backgrounds as opposed to finance and accounting backgrounds, you know, like myself. Well, that's uh, that's good news. That's good news for the job security of, of myself and people like me. So I, I always love to always love to hear that. Now, Eric, insofar as investment management is is somewhat of a solved problem, or at least it's a it's a simplified problem, I think at this point for for long term investors. You know, what do you see the role of an advisor as being in in the coming years? It sounds like behavioral coaching is a big part of the value proposition. Are there even things beyond that? I see some um, I see some financial advisors paddling into waters that I would almost call life coaching you know, being sort of a holistic quarterback uh, for a person's wellness broadly. Where where do you see financial advisors adding value in the years to come if it's not around picking picking stocks? Yeah. And, you know, before we we get to the years to come, I think if we look at what we're doing right now, in many ways, uh, we we're somewhat embarrassed, so to speak, as as an industry. Right. We we have, uh, you know, RTQs or risk tolerance questionnaires uh, that are 10 questions or less. And they're immediately followed by a score and an asset allocation. And that ultimately doesn't help the investor feel understood. And we've got to look beyond, you know, simple risk tolerance questionnaires and get to uh, the behavioral aspects of what will allow us to be effective coaches and effectively make better behavioral decisions to solve that investment problem in very different ways as we go forward relative to what we're doing as an industry uh, today. And, you know, getting to the core behavioral components of, of what an investor needs is, is, I think, right at the critical juncture for us. And, you know, at, at a high level, um, you know, y- y- you see firms attempting to do this. You know, Harold Avinsky is well known for, you know, creating the, the mental accounting, uh, the buckets of money uh, type of an approach. And those are great steps towards helping solve, you know, real behavioral issues that investors face uh, with their portfolios. And, and I think as we do look forward into the future, you know, we're going to see an industry set up around behavioral advice. And, and we need to spend a lot more time understanding the core of what makes our investors tick, their behaviors, you know, what defines a successful relationship. And then we've got to leverage technology to help scale this. Uh, you know, we're, we're at a point where, you know, there are over 10,000 uh, baby boomers, you know, approaching retirement each and every day for, for the next decade. And, you know, this, this is an area where, you know, we, we should be able to see, uh, you know, some AI step in with, with algorithms to prompt advisors with suggested relationship action items. 
you know, that, that span that advisor client relationship uh, so that we're effectively meeting people at their level, so to speak, you know, is the investor a delegator or do they need a consultative relationship? You know, those types of things are going to be really important for us uh, as we move forward as an industry to become effective behavioral coaches. Again, trying to solve that investor problem as opposed to strictly solving the investment problem. So I, I think you said a, a couple of really wise things that I want to run with a, a bit. You know, one of the first is I think the, the advent of technology, um, central banks, uh, sort of, you know, central banks that are intervening more, more active governments. Uh, I think if you look at last year as a microcosm of investor emotions, we lived through uh, an entire emotional lifetime in 2020, like fear, greed, and everything in between in the space of, you know, less than less than 12 months. And I expect this to persist. And so I think that the advisor's role as a behavioral coach uh, and a decisional guidepost is just going to get more and more important as things just move more and more quickly. I mean, we were in a bear market seemingly overnight and then just as fast, we're right back into, you know, buying with both hands. And so people aren't equipped for that sort of whiplash emotionally, and we need to be well positioned to help them out. And then the second thing you talked about was applying these things at scale. Because there is a lot of enthusiasm out in the industry for behavioral finance. I mean, people are hungry for these messages. I think where we haven't gotten as an industry yet, we've got adoption. Uh, I think we have the philosophical and educational underpinnings of a good science. I think what is lacking now is application of, those, of, of that knowledge at scale. And that is where I think you and I are in, in total agreement that the exciting stuff happens going forward. So Eric, given, given how complex your business is now with, with these, uh, the, the tech side, the TAMP side and everything in between, how do you think about your next dollar of spend? What does your decision process look like as a CEO when you're deciding where to spend your next dollar? Well, you know, at Orion, we're, we're focused on tech enabling that advisor client journey um, you know, we've, we've divided that out across four pillars, if you will, from uh, prospect to plan, to invest, to achieve. And as we look at the, uh, you know, the jigsaw puzzle, so to speak, strategically, we, we look for areas that will not only help us create operational efficiencies and additional scale for our business, but we also are always looking for technology that will help improve that client experience. And there are a lot of really exciting things that, that are out there uh, that we look at, but uh, it has to not only be the right fit from a strategic perspective, but it's also got to be a right fit from a, a cultural perspective. And oftentimes, when, when you look at uh, companies, you you will see the core of what you're looking for, but the companies that that we get really excited about are companies that are doing things uh, beyond the core of what we expect, and they're operating in very unique ways. Um, and and I'll 
I'll give you an example of that. Um, when we had the opportunity to purchase uh, the advisor financial planning business, they were certainly well known in the industry as of a next gen financial planning technology. But what we saw was not only the financial planning technology capability, but the ability to offer a next gen client portal experience. Um, they were doing things with their client portal that were well beyond what we had done with our uh, traditional or legacy client portal. And they were uh, leveraging that client portal technology in a way that we felt was, was best in class in the industry. And, and when we find those types of, of hidden gems, so to speak, and, and surprises, um, it gets us really excited about not only leveraging the expected capability, but, but uh, looking forward, it creates an opportunity to, to uh, have a very innovative uh, development roadmap that we can bring to the advisors that we serve. Wonderful. So uh, I first became aware of you uh, a long time ago uh, when I put out a call on Twitter uh, saying that I had sort of two go-to fintech futurists. I had, you know, two good friends who, when I want to think about the future of the industry, these are the two folks I go to. And I said, who else should I know about? And your, your name came up uh, a number of times. And that's where I decided to follow you on Twitter, where you subsequently let me down by never, ever tweeting. But nevertheless, <laughs> <laughs> nevertheless I did follow you. <laughs> so I... I yeah, I'm I'm making an effort, Daniel. I I am not a huge fan of uh you know doing things on social media, but from time to time, uh, I I will I will uh, you know get out there and and tweet something. But I I apologize for letting you down in that oh, regard. It was sore disappointment, but no. So here here's your chance, Eric, because you are a, a, a huge disappointment on Twitter. Here's your chance to share your wisdom uh, with the masses. When I read articles on the future of fintech, it all sort of starts to run together, right? It's blockchain and machine learning and open banking, all stuff I love, like all stuff I'm very high on, but some of it starts to feel samey. So from where you sit in a position of authority uh, with, you know, uh, with a, a checkbook to make actual decisions about the sort of fintech or wealth tech that gets adopted, what's sort of a sneaky trend that you see coming that's maybe not getting as much coverage as some of these higher profile trends? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, innovation is always exciting and things like, you know, Bitcoin and the underlying accounting technology blockchain that, that supports Bitcoin have certainly been exciting developments in, you know, financial services and, and in our space. And I, I love to think of technology as being the great equalizer. You know, it, it not only makes our lives easier, but you know, great technology also has a tendency to create additional transparency and, and drive down costs. And, you know, when when you look at uh, what Robinhood uh, as a brokerage platform did by, you know, being one of the uh, first platforms, if not the first platform to uh, re remove the friction point of trading fees from their model, you know, then we subsequently saw last year, you know, Schwab, TD Ameritrade, uh, and Fidelity, you know, remove trading costs from their platforms. It 
introduced an opportunity to fundamentally change and evolve our industry. And it's it's not getting a lot of press, but you know, we've talked about historically investors uh, in making investments in stocks. And then we evolved into mutual funds. Those mutual funds evolved into ETFs, uh, which which gave people not only, you know, immediate diversification and broad-based exposure, but you can trade those, uh, you know, uh, portfolios during the day on the the exchanges. And removing the uh, friction point of trading fees has introduced that next evolution in a very big and significant way. And, you know, I think that stock baskets or more personalized and tax-efficient ways to invest uh, are going to become something that is a very big deal and a very big part of our future. You know, it allows investors to express ESG uh, preferences. Uh, we can inv- customize or personalize those uh, direct indexes and emphasize themes that are important to us. And if you if you look at it, there are five really big acquisitions. Uh, that have happened here in the past four months. You, you've had uh, Schwab purchase Motif. You've had Morgan Stanley purchase Parametric. You've had BlackRock purchase Aperio, uh, JP Morgan buying 55 IP and Goldman Sachs uh, buying Folio. And, you know, those are all examples of, you know, this very large trend taking place where fundamentally as an industry, we are evolving past these uh, highly structured and non-personalized products, if you will, into customized and personalized indexes. And I think that that's not getting the press or the attention it deserves. And I think it's a huge, huge shift that that is taking place in our industry in a very big way right now. And, you know, outside of financial services, you know, certainly there are a lot of uh, technologies that are exciting, that are that are game changing for us. And you know, as as a, a provider in the fintech space, we can look at what those companies outside of financial services are doing that uh, you know create great user experiences and allow people to personalize and customize things and figure out how do we bring that to the experience of our investors inside of financial services, ultimately, again, focused on helping our investors solve that behavioral problem that, that uh, you know, by and large, uh, we're, we're failing with right now. You know, it's so interesting. I think there's, there's these parts of the world of, of personal finance that, that get adequate attention and these parts that are just not as sexy for whatever reason. And tax management seems to be one of them people are so irrational about taxes, right? I mean, they ignore, they ignore tax management despite the fact that it has a material impact on their ability to meet their goals. Um, people are almost upset about having to pay taxes when they've had you know, tremendous gains, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So I think people are, are really inefficient. Like we're wired inefficiently around, around tax management and tax alpha. So I think there is a huge opportunity there and, you know, I think from a behavioral standpoint, there's huge upside to uh, direct indexing as well. I think the more we can personalize uh, someone's investment choices, 
the more it feels like theirs, the less it feels like a video game, right? Just numbers going up and down on a screen, the more it reflects their values, their beliefs, um, their thoughts about the world of, of business and, and their ethics. I think that the more we can make that portfolio look like them while still providing adequate diversification, I think the better behaved people will be. So I think there's a, a host of behavioral benefits there. Now, Eric, you mentioned Robinhood, which has certainly been in the, in the news a lot lately, but they were actually in court uh, trying to litigate this, this idea that perhaps they behaviorally made their tech product such that it would induce people to make poor decisions. You know, they're doing things like confetti popping cannons and things when you make a, make a stock purchase. They're giving um, free fractional shares when you sign up. And there's a pretty robust uh, debate around whether or not they're doing something good in inducing young people to, to start trading and getting into markets and, and learning about markets, or if they're doing something bad by inducing people to do things like overtrade and speculate. So how do you think about Orion's role uh, when it comes to incorporating uh, behavioral thinking and decisional thinking into the way that you actually design products is it your job, is it your responsibility to design products in a way that will lead to, to good client outcomes? Well, I, you know, hearing the description of Robinhood's uh, platform in that regard, it, it reminds me of the popular Netflix show, you know, called uh, The Social Dilemma. I'm not sure if you've watched that with your kids or not, but it, it highlights essentially the negatives, you know, associated with the digital age that we find ourselves in, especially around social media and the impact that that can have on our behaviors. And I, I like to think that we live in a world where we can take this knowledge, uh, a powerful knowledge, about the way that we're, we're wired to think and behave and fundamentally use it to drive better investor behaviors. And, you know, that, that starts with understanding the investor better than we do today, uh, creating user experiences that, that reinforce positive behaviors and ultimately drive better investor outcomes. Um, uh, I'll give you an example of, of that. And I think that, you know, Historically, we uh, as an industry, if, if somebody wanted to weed out things that were negative uh, social uh, situations that, that, that they wanted to screen from their portfolios, they could do that. But what would ultimately drive a better long-term outcome for an investor would be to help them invest in things that they care about, things that they believe don't just screen out the bad, but but will impact the world in a positive way. So if we can help investors, for example, design an index of S&P 500 companies that have uh, diverse boards that they feel will, you know, help those companies drive better long-term success than, than boards that, that are very traditional and stodgy and, and are not made up of, of diverse uh, you know, members, then, then I think that we can drive better behavioral outcomes for investors. And what Robin Hood had attempted to do, you know, I, 
I actually really love it. I, I love what they've done to democratize investing. I, I love what they've done to get people to invest early. I think that, again, you know, you've got to give them a lot of credit for removing the, the friction point of trading fees uh, from our investment models. And ultimately, they uh, could be credited for this next evolution of advice as we move more and more towards these personal indexes that have a huge opportunity to be customized in such a way to drive better behavioral outcomes for, for our investors that we serve. So I, I want to shift gears here a bit and talk about leadership and sort of the war for talent in this post-COVID era. Um, you and I have worked together uh, now for, for four or five months, uh, and we've never met. And we're unlikely to meet for, uh, you know, a further four, four or five months. And you, you helm an organization with uh, over a thousand people that, that has employees from Philly to Nebraska to Seattle and, and everywhere in between. How do you think about building a culture uh, and maintaining cohesion and influence in this sort of new work from home reality? Well, we, we certainly find ourselves in the midst of this pandemic where, where we're, we're at a point, uh, you know, oddly enough, where we seem to be able to see, you know, both ends of the spectrum. And, and you know, our, every day, you know, I get up, I, I turn the news on and, and, you know, you see the death rates that, that are, are climbing higher and higher. And at the same time, we, we all have hope and optimism about the future due to the vaccine uh, that's that's now available to us. And and you know my uh, my heart goes out to the families that have lost loved ones due to this this horrible pandemic that you know that that we're in. And and as I look back at uh, you know 2020, I th I think from a tech perspective, one of the things that was most astonishing to me uh, was our ability to uh, shorten our tech adoption curve, right? So if, if, you, would, if you would think back, um, you know, schools or businesses, as we would evaluate technology like uh, Zoom, uh, you know, we would normally have gone through a span or a period where we would have evaluated that technology. We would have done a beta test. We have a small group. You know, if people try that across maybe even a year or two's time frame, we'd come back, we'd evaluate the pros and cons, and then we'd make a decision. And our adoption curve for technology in 2020 went from years to weeks to essentially to, to days, as many of us left on Friday expecting to come back to the, you know, the office on Monday and, and found ourselves working from home for the next uh, several months. But you know, now we're at a point where we where we use terms like Zoom and Slack as part of our, our daily lingo. Um, and obviously, these technologies are, are here to stay. Um, but ultimately, you know, we've we've had to define and adjust our our traditional mindset of corporate culture in very, very different ways, uh, you know, in a, in a very short time frame. You know, we're we 
uh, at Orion are obviously at a, a work from home situation today. And I don't see that changing in the future. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, as uh, an employer to attract and retain the best talent in the marketplace, it's, it's absolutely critical for us to continue to offer, you know, very flexible work from home capabilities to our, our team members as, as we move forward. And I think that, uh, you know, one of the the bright lights, so to speak, is that we had this pandemic in 2020 and not, say, 2010, where these types of technologies uh, were not readily available to us so that, uh, you know, as many businesses can continue on as, as we're seeing today in a, in a very healthy and, and supportive way. Well, I think you're, I think, you know, if I were hiring people, I think one of the questions that I would ask them is what are the lessons that you learned from 2020? Because 2020 was such a strange year uh, and there was so much pain and suffering, but I think there were also some lessons learned about what matters and what doesn't and how technology can facilitate work-life balance. And so we paid a steep cost, right, for, for all of these lessons learned in 2020. But I do think that, that businesses and people and families can and should emerge from this year with a, with a better understanding of how technology uh, can facilitate uh, more efficient processes, but also a better family life. And that's something, you know, that's something that I'm taking with me. I think there's a lot that can get done over Zoom. And I think that, you know, the, I think that the table has been equaled somewhat, you know, Orion's headquartered in, in Omaha, which is a cool town full of great people. I've, I've only had amazing food every time I've been to Omaha and been very warmly welcomed by the people there. But, you know, it doesn't have the obvious appeal of, of perhaps some of the larger coastal cities but I think what you're seeing now is that technology is, like you said, leveling the playing field so that smaller secondary markets can compete for talent in a way that they haven't been able to historically uh, when, when we had to do business face-to-face. So I think there, there is some upside. Anything else you'd, you'd like to say about sort of competing for talent in, in middle America? Well, you're exactly right. And, and, you know, I used to tell team members that if they didn't like Omaha, you know, we had locations in New York and Seattle and and other places, but, you know, right now it's all about work from home. I uh, am typically in the office every day, but I'm, I'm probably one of maybe a dozen or so team members that, that are here uh, choosing to be here in a office facility that has, you know, over 90,000 square feet available to us. And so I think, you know, corporations in general have an opportunity to completely change the, you know, the, the workplace, you know, we, we no longer uh, may need, uh, you know, cubes for everyone or offices, but we may very well need to have uh, some, some type of uh, meeting areas and gathering spaces for us, uh, collaboration spaces, if you will, um, as we move forward. And, and that totally changes our corporate fr- footprint dynamic as we move forward. Absolutely. Well, I think uh, many, of the, many of the changes at the business level, I, I think, will be welcome. I think 
we will all emerge as a as an economy and a, as an industry. I think will emerge stronger for this. Uh, the last question before I get to the lightning round, sort of free association. One of the things I like to ask people, um, I'm actually going to flip on its head and ask you about your organization. One of my favorite things to ask people is, how are you misunderstood? Or, you know, what's a, what's a common misperception about you? And then have a good conversation uh, about why that mas- misperception might be in place. But given that you helm this large organization, what, what's a common misconception about your organization, about Orion? And, and we're going to give you a chance to, to debunk that here today on Standard Deviations. Yeah, and, and I would tell you that um, one of the, the biggest misconceptions that we have at Orion is that um, because we support you know, independent fiduciary advisors that that we we have a tendency to work with smaller firms. And and the reality is that, you know, we support over 250 of the the nation's RIAs that have over a billion dollars in in assets under management. We support five of uh, Barron's top 10 firms uh, work with us here at Orion. And and you know, I uh, I I love supporting the independent fiduciary advisors. And, you know, many of those firms that are listed in some of those those large firm categories that that I just mentioned, uh, you know, started out with us with with only having a couple hundred million dollars in in assets under management. And I love being in this space because we squarely see the future as being uh, fiduciary. And we're now having enterprises reach out to us that that also see the future as being fiduciary, and they're looking to Orion to provide them, you know, with help to to reshape their organizations from being, uh, you know, more brokerage or commission based to being uh, fiduciary based. And the organizations that are willing to step back and really. Uh, embrace the future as being fiduciary, and that type of business model are the organizations that that we're really excited to align with and and support. Um, and and you know, I I would just mention that you know, look, we we uh, are a bit misunderstood in that regard, but but we're proud of that as well because we we see the future squarely moving to to where we're at today. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it really brings it full circle. We talked about your, your father's um, pioneering ideas about, about our industry and how he came to it from a, a client-centric, client-first point of view. I think that is continue, uh, that we continue to uh, skate to where that, that puck is going. And I think that that DNA uh, lives on and is still very, very vibrant at Orion today. So thank you for for bringing that full circle. So Eric, before we before we close out, I gotta warn you, um, I've I've already roasted you for your your lack of Twitter involvement, and things are gonna get a, a little contentious here because here in the lightning round, I'm gonna put you on the spot, and I'm gonna ask you some tough questions, and you just have to be. Brutally honest, you have to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? I am ready. Let's go for it. Okay. I sensed a little trepidation at first, but then <laughs> let's go for it. Let's go for it. Seemed resolved. I like it. 
So uh, you and I attended the same undergraduate uh, Institute of Higher Learning. I went on to get a PhD from, from that same Institute of Higher Learning. You went on to the University of Utah um, to, to get your graduate work done. So tell me here today, are you picking the BYU Cougars or the Utah Utes? You can only love one. <laughs> Which will it be? I am a huge Ute fan. I, I love the Utah Utes. <laughs> Two strikes. And this on BYU's, BYU was within one yard of a perfect season. And I feel like Boy. your lack of belief in them was the difference, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I, I cheer for the Cougars unless they're playing the Utes. And then, and then, uh, then I do bleed red, so. Fair enough. We will have a we will have an excellent rivalry uh, next fall when they get together. Um, <laughs> you and you and I both have some connections to Utah, which is known for many things, but primarily known for, of course, fry sauce, which is this uh, glorious combination of ketchup and mayonnaise and a few other spices. Eric Clark, are you a fry sauce guy? Yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Love fry sauce. Uh, I, I think I was at Hires there by the University of Utah campus the first time I was exposed to fry sauce, and, and I've loved it ever since. So I, I would say yes. I, too, remember my, my maiden voyage with fry sauce out in, uh, in Provo. And being from Alabama, I had never been exposed to such, <laughs> to such an incredible condiment. It is highly recommended to everyone listening. Um, we've talked a lot about Spotify as sort of a, a, a vehicle for having good conversations uh, about investment management. You are a big Spotify listener. What was the most unexpected artist on your Spotify end of year rap? So who are the people going to have their mind blown that Eric Clark listens to on Spotify? Well, being located in Omaha, Nebraska, it would probably be most surprising that I'm a, a huge Jimmy Buffett fan. I, I love his music. And I, maybe it's a way for me to escape um, and imagine being on the beach somewhere, but uh, I, I love Jimmy Buffett music. <laughs> so a, land, a landlocked Midwesterner listening to songs about his toes in the sand. I like it. That's right. And then the last question, uh, what's something that few people in the industry would, would know about you as a person? Well, one of the things that, that, uh, that I do uh, every week, I'm, I'm a teammate's mentor. And so I mentor, uh, well, right now, a, a senior in high school, but I've, I've been mentoring him for just over nine years. I'm a huge believer um, you know, in coaching and in uh, mentoring. I know I've had a lot of great mentors in, in my life, and I like to pay that forward through a school-based mentoring program um, here in Nebraska called Teammates. I'm, I'm not only a Teammates mentor, but I'm on a, the Teammates board here locally for the Millard School District, which is the school district that, that uh, the public school that I attended um, and graduated from uh, here locally. And it's, it's just a way to give back. And, and I think that um, while we all give back in unique and meaningful ways, hopefully it's, it's probably something that, that to me brings me a great deal of satisfaction in my life in a very uh, unexpected way. And, 
And because we do it here locally, probably a, a lot of people in the industry don't know that that we're involved um, with the teammates organization to the extent that we are. But we have uh, right at three dozen, uh, you know, teammates mentors here at Orion that each and every week give an hour of their time to go into the the local school district here and 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 provide mentoring help to typically at risk uh, school based um, school. Uh, students and I'm I'm really proud of of what we've been able to accomplish as an organization and and really um, appreciate the relationship that I have with my mentee. Fantastic! My um my parents actually met and fell in love as part of a mentorship program in uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters uh, in college. They were both uh, mentors. Uh, and, and that's how they met. And I think that's a fantastic way, fantastic awesome. way to spend your time and a fantastic way to, to meet your, your life partner. So Eric, uh, thank you so much for your candor. Thank you so much for your insights uh, and all that you've shared uh, with us today. Uh, if people want to learn more about you or your organization, where, where would you point them? You know, the easiest way to reach me is just going to orion.com. You're, you know, free to learn more about our organization. But to the extent that, um, you know, I can be helpful with anything uh, that we've discussed here, or if there are additional ideas or feedback, things that, that you'd like to share with me, please feel free to reach out to me on, on Twitter, of course. <laughs> yes. Yes, on Twitter. No, just kidding. Yes, thank you, Eric, so much. It's been <laughs> it's been wonderful, uh, and I'm sure everyone's taken a lot away. So thank you, thank you so much. Great, thank you, Daniel. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.